Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available for free in iTunes. Please take a minute and subscribe so you're always up to date. You can also listen anytime at thejazzsession.com. In addition to episodes of the show, thejazzsession.com features written interviews, live jazz news, and lots of jazz links. This week's guest is saxophonist and composer John Ellis. His new record is called Dance Like There's No Tomorrow. From that album, here is All Up in the Isles. My guest is John Ellis, and we're uh, recording here at the Jazz Standard, where his band is in the second night of the uh, CD release party for Dance Like There's No Tomorrow. John, it's great to have you on, and I wonder if we could start off by uh, talking about the band and how you brought uh, the four musicians on the record together. Uh, Let's see. Jason Marsalis is playing drums, and he's someone I've been playing with for many, many years. I lived in New Orleans um, two separate occasions, the first time in 93, and the second time for the 99-2000 school year I was teaching at Loyola. And uh, played a lot with Jason during both of those times and, and ever since. I've been bringing musicians from New York down to New Orleans um, ever since. Uh, I'm trying to be a little bit of like a cross-pollinator, I guess. So um, so I've been playing with Jason for a long time. Matt Perrine also is someone I had been playing with for a long time. And in many ways, the concept for this whole project grew out of playing some gigs with him where he was playing tuba in a sort of like more of a straight-up jazz setting a little bit less, uh, not so much of the New Orleans brass band setting, although he does tons of that too. Uh, but I had a memorable gig with him the first time I was in New Orleans that helped me imagine that I wanted to do this project. So Matt Prine on sousaphone was instrumental. Um, so we have him and then Jason and then Gary Versace is, is someone I had only recently played with up here, but I felt like he had a really imaginative and colorful uh, organ concept that was 
different than the typical organ idiomatically organ oriented concept that I thought would work well with tuba playing bass and would be really colorful and he also played accordion which I was thinking I would want to use on some things which I used a few things on of accordion on the record too and then for uh, tonight's gig we've got uh, Sam Yehel sitting in on organ right exactly well Gary played with us last night Sam um, was kind enough to come in tonight um, we were just rehearsing the music with him actually pulling it together last minute as we often do uh, Gary uh, Gary actually had he had to have a, a minor surgery but he had to have surgery today so um, unfortunately he, he wasn't able to do it at the last minute so so you talked about uh, the sousaphone being instrumental to the concept of this record what did you actually you had a sound and a plan in mind for this this particular record that you were trying to get at with this particular grouping of musicians and the songs that you wrote definitely um Living in New Orleans, you hear a lot of tuba music. Um, I always thought about trying to make some kind of tuba record that would be my personal spin. And um, we have been thinking about this for years, actually, for many years. The, lo- the logistics of getting everyone together can be difficult, especially with guys as busy as these guys. So, yeah, uh, I was thinking about this for, for several years, uh, the idea of a tuba record. I was actually thinking, initially I was thinking tuba and accordion on the whole record, sort of a, a band that could play in the street. Uh, and all the music would work like that too. Um, when I got Gary to play, then we started to realize how cool the organ stuff was. Also, and um, if we had had more time to experiment, it might have been a more balanced, like tuba and accordion type record. On the live gigs with Gary, he plays more accordion often. But uh, yeah, the concept really grew around su- how to make an interesting sousaphone record. And, and I think a lot about orchestration in general and the music that I, I play. I think sometimes certain types of music may not work so well with certain groups of instruments but when you when you get the instrumentation you get a certain interesting instrumentation that frees you up to write other kinds of things you might not be able to write in other other settings so how much of this record really came out kind of in the studio or in the rehearsals and how much was a a finished thing in your mind going in to work with the guys i mean every every project i've ever done uh is not finished in my mind I, i try to leave I mean, I try to leave room for collaboration and I try to leave room for the individual voices of the musician. I definitely had a vision for, for each of these songs, but uh, honestly, I was nervous. Having never played this music before, before we made the record, I was really not sure. I, had, I was hopeful, but I was not sure that it would work. And I certainly wasn't sure that it would work as well as it did. So once we got together and started playing, uh, it really did come together then, and people had their input. Um, Quite a lot of the finishing touches came together based on the personalities of the musicians involved.
is there a, a church music uh, background in your past? I think maybe with your dad or something. There's definitely a sanctified feel to some of these tunes, like all, all up in the aisles, and although that could come from just living in New Orleans, too. Yeah, I think it's a both and. My father is a, a Presbyterian minister. I grew up in North Carolina. I went to church all the time, uh, both his church, and then when I would stay over at my friends' houses, I would go to their churches. You know, I've probably been saved like five or six times. You know, the, the Bible Belt is a pretty intense place, but my father's a really progressive guy, very liberal, so a lot of the things that you think about when you uh, think of ministers and rebelling and all that didn't, didn't apply so much to, to me. My, my, uh, my mother's father is also a minister, my father's grandfather, so it goes back many generations of ministers in my family. And that, I played in church a lot when I was growing up, so that definitely influenced me. You, uh, when you first went to UNO, you ended up studying with Jason's dad, right, with Ellis Marsalis, is that right? I did, yeah. I went to UNO for one year in 93, and uh, Jason's dad was t- heading up the program at that time. And I actually had also the, the good fortune to play in his band some. He had a record called Whistle Stop, came out around that time, that was promoting the music of James Black, which is a great New Orleans drummer that people definitely don't know enough about. And uh, I was 18 and uh, definitely struggling playing those James Black tunes, but I got a chance to play some of them with, with Ellis. And I would say as far as the education I got, probably got a lot more from playing with him. It was such a great great treat to play with him. And he's, a, he's a amazing um, on the bandstand in terms of how you can learn things from him just by, by playing with him. It's really good. And what caused you to make the jump to New York City in the 90s? Uh, a lot of different factors. My brother had moved here in 89. He's a really kind of well-known artist. He was lobbying for it. Um, there was a, Also, I had the opportunity to, to, to be in the Thelonious Monk competition in 96. I actually did it again after that, but in 96. And pretty much every saxophone player in the competition was from the Northeast, uh, either Boston or New York. And it was a certain feeling of, like, vocabulary and just evolution that I felt like I wasn't getting exposed to in New Orleans, especially like a really modern tenor saxophone conception. And, um, I was just curious. I just I was young and I wanted to, to try to develop as much as I could and also felt like um, the longer I stayed in New Orleans because it's such a great place, maybe the harder it would be to leave, things like that. So I, a lot of it was really motivated by just a uh, desire to improve and to, to change my network and be around musicians that were really challenging and being around music that was challenging stuff that I that was foreign to me basically so what was your experience like at the new school the new school was great for me I had taken three years off from school and I, I was very focused on what I thought I could get out of school which I think is really important if you're going to go to jazz school because it's a pretty impractical thing to do with your life um, but the new school is great they have a real adjunct kind of environment you can study with whoever you want um there's a lot of amazing assortment of legendary people there, like Reggie Workman and uh, Joe Chambers and Cecil McBee, Joanne Brackeen. I studied a lot with George Garzon, which is great. There's a giant list of, of great musicians that, that I interacted with, and their, their classical thing was really great, too. One of my biggest mentors there is this guy, Robert Saden, who's a producer and orchestrator. He worked a lot with Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock, and we still uh, work together some. I, I mean, I definitely reach out to him often for his advice and so how did uh, the reality of of being in new york compare with what you imagined it might be before you went um i don't think there's much of a way to prepare for something like living in new york uh but i think the thing is that one of the reasons why i try to convince or or encourage my friends um to move here if they have any ambition to do it is, is just because i think uh new york can loom so large in your imagination as this kind of 
when you're not here, it, it, it starts to take on a real unreal character. You start to think of it being, oh my God, New York City, is everybody's... Uh, and something about just dealing with all the people that you hear on records uh, and are impressed with, just sort of meeting them and, and seeing them as human beings and realizing a lot of those things. Um, and not having that distance between you and a place like New York, I think is really helpful. It's sort of, you pop the, the, the mythical bubble. Uh, I know that was great for me, but I mean, New York is, is and continues to be um, a difficult place to live in a lot of ways. It's very time-consuming to do menial tasks and um, you know, it's challenging. It's always hard to make money here. And, uh, but I think that's one of the reasons why it's great to move. It's great to move here when you're young also so that you can you have the energy to, to, to fight the fight that you got to fight to live here. spent uh, so much of your time particularly on record playing either your own original music or somebody else's original music as opposed to mining the standard repertoire is is that been an intentional choice on your part yes actually it kind of has been i mean for a variety of reasons i guess i feel the most at home when i'm playing music that's uh music either written by me or music that is written by friends of mine and we're interpreting it for the first time i think uh um there's such a weight of, of tradition. There's such a burden of tradition in jazz, and there's. Uh, I, I find that I love so much the, the tradition and the, the music, and I've listened to it so much. And to to do sort of a, a half-assed version of that, or 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 something where uh, it's like, oh, look at me, and I can play like so and so, or has never been something that I was really motivated to do. Also, I don't, you know, in many ways, I don't think I was ready to make make a, a strong statement on the standard material i think it's I, I still have an ambition to do that in the future but i feel like um the more i can spend sort of trying to cultivate a perspective and cultivate a uh, really nurture the, the the music that that i'm interested in and and then maybe i'll have a a hope of of playing some of those standard that standard material and and having it have a personal a, a, per, a personal spin uh, this uh this new record has been in such heavy rotation in my house that I might not be asking this question in an unbiased way, but it seems like all these melodies are really kind of singable, and many of these tunes you hear them and you feel like you've you've heard them before, like you've always been hearing them. Is is making kind of accessible but still 
good music? Is accessibility part of what you're after? Sure. I mean, I like music that's inclusive. Um, I, I like uh, I like to to include people in 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 the music that I'm playing. I mean, I also like to challenge people. I like I like music that has subtle, sly little little um, complexity and things that maybe seems seems really accessible but has some some hidden little things. Uh, you know, I like the idea of playful music. I like the idea of music with a sense of humor. You know, I like, but I, sure, I, I'm conscious. I'm conscious of of, of accessibility, but uh, I think it's important for me. It's also important to not pander and to not be so concerned. Sometimes accessibility can mean that you're um, you can be stifled by trying to figure out what the audience wants or what the audience thinks. Certainly, I'm not not so interested in that. But but uh, uh, I like making music that has an inclusive feeling. I became aware of you, and I'm, I'm guessing many people did, for your association with Charlie Hunter, which lasted a, a number of years and was very successful. Um, it, you guys had a, it was a New Orleans connection in how you met, too, right, you and Charlie? Yeah, uh, I met him kind of through Stanton Moore. I actually, um, trying to think how it all unfolded, but I think I actually met him just coincidentally somewhere, but then he was like, oh, yeah, Stanton Moore told me about you. I guess when Stanton and he had done some touring together a long time ago, Galactic and Charlie actually were co- did a co-build tour in the late 90s and I think Stanton had at that time I was playing with Stanton quite a lot and I think Stanton had said oh Charlie man you really, you'd like this guy John Ellis and I guess he filed it away Charlie has an impressive brain he doesn't forget very much so um, when I met him there was some he knew who I was from, from talking to Stanton and then uh, we started playing shortly after that and played for five and a half years so other things, uh, ways that you're approaching the music now that that come out of that association, or things that you uh, that you picked up or added to your repertoire when you were in that time with with Charlie Hunter's band. Of course, uh, to play with someone like that for five and a half years is, is, makes a tremendous impression on on you. Uh, I guess I'm not sure how much of that is conscious and how much of it is unconscious, but that was a, a good a good part of my musical identity for that time, and so. Um, playing for those audiences uh, changed a lot of things for me playing playing in a context the, the thing that's great about him and about being a saxophone player in that band is that I've talked before a little bit about feeling the burden of tradition when you're playing with someone who's playing uh, a hybrid instrument that's unprecedented uh, who knows lots of different types of music so stylistically there are lots of things that you refer- you're referencing but in terms of the there aren't any like what did the you know eight string bass and guitar hybrid players of the '60s do? You know you, you don't. There isn't any of that. You're not burdened so much by that. And I, I uh, honestly, actually, before I started playing with him, I hadn't even listened to his music all that much. Only a little bit. Maybe I had one record, and uh, I wasn't even burdened by his history. I was just basically listening to the music and trying to make make it work, which I think is is a great place to be. It's very liberating. You don't really have to feel like you have to play a certain way. I mean, particularly for me, I think it's harder on drummers to play with him, actually, but for, I had a great deal of freedom playing with him the whole time. So, What's what's worth it for you about being a professional musician? What what makes it worth going through the struggle and how difficult it is to make a living and all that stuff? Um, you know, I used to joke when we would go on tour that we were in the moving business and that we would, uh, we would actually just get to play a little music for fun. And uh, oftentimes that's how it feels. It's like the, the music part is the part that's worth it. I mean, the, the, the time when you're actually making the music is, is uh, when it's at its best. There's really nothing like it. And, uh, and I think that when there's, when there's a community that grows around it and you, feel, you also feel an audience interacting with each other and interacting with you, that's also nice. 
but my my love for the music and my the great feelings that I have playing it don't always depend on that. I mean, sometimes we're playing for very few people, and I, I still feel very fulfilled. The, the music making is very therapeutic, uh, and I think that's why you go through all the other stuff. What's coming up for you uh, in the near future here? More music with this band? As much as possible. Um, I, I have this as a named project, Double Wide, um, for a reason that I imagine this project making multiple records and growing over the years and also having some just sort of my own other things that I do too. There's quite a few things on the on the horizon uh, with that. This band, we're playing in Toledo for the Art Tatum Jazz Festival. We're playing at Yoshi's in August uh, and a little kind of West Coast thing and trying to book as much as we can. We might do a little tour through the South in the fall. That's uh, very, I'm hoping that that comes together. Uh, I also have some some music I wrote for eight musicians that's a whole separate project that I worked on most of the end of last year that hopefully I'm going to record sometime this year and have that be something different um, there's definitely no shortage of things I want to do there's a shortage of time well the new record is Dance Like There's No Tomorrow my guest is John Ellis and uh, John I thank you so much for being here and I uh, wish you a great gig tonight my pleasure Jason thanks for having me
That's John Alice from his new album, Dance Like There's No Tomorrow, on Hyena Records. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available for free in iTunes. Please take a minute and subscribe so you're always up to date. You can also listen at thejazzsession.com. In addition to episodes of the show, thejazzsession.com features written interviews, live jazz news, and lots of jazz links. For more interviews and reviews, you can also visit allaboutjazz.com, the world's largest jazz website. You'll find my writing there beside that of many other jazz experts and fans. You can contact me via email at jason at thejazzsession.com. The mailing list is also available at thejazzsession.com. When you join, you'll get periodic updates about the guests who appear on this show, plus other news from my world. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. Thanks very much for listening. Remember to support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.